be reading from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And uh, if you might recall, uh, the Sunday before, we kind of got booted out of church, so to speak, for a few months. We started in 1 John, and we didn't get very far. We got through these verses. But these verses are really important for us if we're going to understand the message of 1 John and the authority behind the message of 1 John. And so to get us restarted, I wanted us to go back and look at this. Now, some of the points will, of course, be the same. You can't have too much originality with the Scripture. If, if you find somebody who's preaching who seems to be very original, uh, he's probably not the right guy to be listening to. And the Scripture is 2,000 years old. Newness is not something that should probably be commended in preaching. But we'll be looking at the passage for the purpose of getting ourselves started once more with a fresh start in the series looking through the book of 1 John. So we're reading from 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we read in the Scripture that You are light, even later in this very letter, we ask that You would shed light upon this portion of Your Word, that we would see, understand, believe, and have eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John, starting the first verse, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And sometimes... Sometimes a shepherd of real sheep or a shepherd in the flock of God, the word pastor is a shepherding term, has different obligations. A pastor is obligated to feed sheep. A shepherd is obligated to feed sheep. A shepherd is obligated to keep sheep in line. And a shepherd is obligated to protect sheep from enemies. And John, the author of 1 John, does all three in this letter. He is engaged in the work of protecting his people, protecting the church or churches under his charge from all kinds of enemies while also caring for them. The author of 1 John is the Apostle John. Now if you look at the letter of 1 John, you'll see that it is formally or technically anonymous, that he never identifies himself, he doesn't identify his audience either, but the early church, church tradition, very clearly, unanimously attributes the letter of 1 John to the Apostle John and then tells us his audience, which we will read more of in just a moment. But even without that kind of tradition of telling us that this is the writing of the Apostle John, it should be very obvious to us if we were to be familiar with the Gospel of John. There's a lot of similar wording, a lot of similar themes between John and the Gospel of John. You have themes of love and light and truth and witness and sonship. 
there are other similarities as well which may be less apparent in our English translations, and that is that the, the grammar of 1 John and John is very similar. I've mentioned this before, but uh, the gospel writer Luke, who also writes the book of Acts, he writes at a very high level. He's a doctor. He's well-educated. Greek seems to be his first language, and so he writes with a very educated hand, but John writes as one for whom Greek is a second language, and it would have been. Greek would have been a second language for a fisherman from Galilee. And so there's a lot of similarities here, and we see that this same John who is from the Gospel is this same John who writes 1 John. Now we know a good bit about his audience from what we read elsewhere, that John is at this point, as he writes this letter, he is a pastor to a church or to a group of churches. Perhaps he serves in sort of a, a bishop type of role. These churches in Ephesus. And as he serves these churches, he has a concern for these churches. Now these Ephesian churches are, are very important churches as you go through the scriptures. Paul is kind of the first pastor of the Ephesian churches. And Paul writes the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy to Timothy, who was a later pastor of these Ephesian churches. And now these Ephesian churches are pastored, shepherded by John the Apostle. Now, I would very much like to have been pastored by Paul and Timothy and John the Apostle, wouldn't you? I mean, that, that is quite the legacy of pastors. And so these Ephesian churches, the, these are churches that are, are well cared for by the Lord, well loved by the Lord. And so Paul, or John rather, is writing to these churches. Now, we need to look and understand why John is writing this letter. This letter is not an evangelistic letter. It's not written to those who are outside of the church. Rather, it's written to those who are inside of the church. It's written to those who already profess faith in Jesus Christ. And John writes this letter as an elder, as a pastor. In fact, if you go look at 2 John and 3 John, John identifies himself as an elder. He is an apostle, but he is also an elder. Now, for those of us who hold or have held the office of elder, this should be extremely encouraging and perhaps a good bit frightening that we share the same office as the Apostle John, who just so happened to be, as well, Jesus' best friend. John was Jesus' best friend. It was, it was John who was with Jesus at the Lord's Supper, and Jesus leaned against him at the Lord's Supper. And then as well, when Jesus is on the cross, the only of the apostles to still be there present, sitting next to Jesus' mother, is John. And Jesus said to John, look at Mary, behold your mother. He entrusted to John the care for his own mother upon his death. John is a central figure in the life and ministry of Jesus. John writes this letter in order to warn his churches. He has a great concern for his churches, and the concern comes from what he perceives to be a danger. And the danger is that his churches or his church are being torn apart. And they're being torn apart by various false teachings. And, of course, various false teachers who are teaching these teachings. 
there seems to be actually two different and really opposing false, false types of teachings that are, that are afflicting or assaulting John's churches at this time. And the first is a teaching that taught that Jesus was not really gone. That he was man. Now maybe he was kind of partly God, or maybe he was some kind of a God, but he was not the God. And on the flip side, others taught that John, or that Jesus was God, but he wasn't really a man. These these kinds of teachers are called Gnostics, and they believed, according to a following in sort of a Greek theology or, or Greek philosophy, that all things that are spiritual, spiritual good, physical bad. And so if spiritual is good, then Jesus, who is good, could not possibly have really been physical. So he just kind of seemed like he was a man, but really he was God. And so John needs to oppose both of these because Jesus is both fully man and fully God, never one at the expense of the other. And so some of the church, some of the people in the churches of Ephesus are following one sort of false teaching. Another of these groups is following the other sort of false teaching. And John is writing to these people, primarily to those still inside the church, that, that they would not fall away into either of those camps. And it would be good for us, I think, to get a little glimpse, a little insight into the heart and the mind of John at this point. And I, I've mentioned this story before, but I think it's particularly pertinent for us. For those of us who I think are perceptive enough to see on the horizon, even in Western civilization, even in our own country, a coming sort of persecution, though perhaps not as acute as felt elsewhere in the world, a sort of persecution nonetheless. I had this impressed upon me in a conversation I had recently. But there are folks who would like us to bend the knee to Caesar every bit as much today as there were in John's day. And so I, I came across this, this story a while ago about a man named Polycarp. You may remember this name. It's a very memorable name, Polycarp. Uh, if any of you, if any of you would, would, there's some of you who are expecting, if you would name your child Polycarp, I would be both impressed and a little flabbergasted. The, the poor little guy would have a great, a great name to live up to, but uh, I'm not sure he would appreciate it so much over time. But Polycarp is a leader in the early church. Polycarp is a disciple of John. Jesus gives the great commission to the apostles, go make disciples of all nation, well, nations. Well, they take that seriously. And one of the disciples that John makes is a man named Polycarp. Polycarp becomes, after John leaves the scene, a very important leader in the early church. He follows in John's footsteps, and he becomes a sort of bishop. He oversees a number of churches and their pastors as well. And Polycarp grows to be an old man. As he was younger, he was a disciple of John. He grows and he becomes a, a rather old man. And as he becomes a rather old man, he lives into the time of great persecution of the church. And so at this particular time, the Romans decide that everybody must confess that Caesar is Lord. So they come to Polycarp, the old man, at least 86 years old and even probably older, and they say essentially to him, old man, we don't want to bother with you. We're not in the business of harassing or bothering old men who are nearly on their deathbed anyways. And so just, we're just going to let you off easy. 
We just want to be able to say that we came to you and dealt with you. So we'll just ask you, just take a little pinch of incense, throw it on the altar, mutter the words, Caesar is Lord, and we'll let you go. If you don't, we'll burn you at the stake and stick a spear through your guts. So what does Polycarp do? But he responds very famously saying this. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. He wouldn't bend the knee even when his life was on the line. I believe that is a good testimony for us and may become even more powerful for us as time goes on. Well, again, Polycarp had been discipled by John. And as others tell us his story, so Polycarp tells us a little bit of John's story, particularly John's, an insight into John's heart and mind. And, and here Polycarp tells this very fascinating story about just, just how strongly John felt about these false teachers. There was a, a false teacher named Serinthus, and Serinthus was one who taught that Jesus wasn't really God, that he was a man, that he was a, a naturally born man of the union of Joseph and Mary, he denied the virgin birth, and he said that he only really had some kind of divinity at his baptism, that, that God descended upon him at his baptism, and he ministered in the power of God, but then before he was crucified, God left him again, and he ceased to be God at that point. Obviously, a, a great error, one that is a gospel uh, perverting error that somebody who believes that cannot be saved. And so John feels very strongly about this. And John goes into a famous Roman bathhouse. You know the Roman bathhouses. And when he's there, he sees this man, Serinthus. And he goes running out of the bathhouse as soon as he sees Serinthus. And he says, let us fly, for Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within, lest the bathhouse fall upon us and we all perish. He was so convinced that God was displeased with Serinthus and his teachings that he fled from him lest God choose that moment to strike Serinthus for his great blasphemy. This shows us the heart and the soul and just how deeply John feels about the errors which are tearing his churches apart. He loves his church and he will not see them go down without him putting up some sort of a fight. And so that gives us an insight into John's heart. We'll come then into the first verse of the passage. Verse 1, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now John begins with language which is very similar to the language he started his gospel with. There it was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John in the Gospel means to mirror the language or allude to the language of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in John 1, 1, not 1 John 1, 1, that's three ones. John 1, 1, that's two ones. In John 1, 1, what we're meant to see is that Jesus is the God of Genesis 1, 1. That the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God, Jesus is that God. 
And so John says in his gospel, Jesus is that God, and he refers to that God as the Word who was with God in the beginning, and now he begins this letter, that which was from the beginning. That is, that which was God, that who is God. And now he goes on and he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and with our hands have touched. Isn't that incredible? John uses three senses. He says that he has heard the voice of the living God, that he has seen him and looked at him, and that he has even touched him. Isn't there something marvelous about this? I mean, the Ephesians, they got to have Paul and Timothy and John as their pastor. But John got to hear and see and touch Jesus who is God himself. I would very much like to have been pastored. If, if the Apostle John walked into this church and said, I would like your job, I would walk down very quickly. But if you gave me the choice between being pastored by the Apostle John and hearing and seeing and touching Jesus, I would very much like the latter. And John says that that is what he did. He heard and he saw and he touched Jesus. Just, just think of this. John is with Jesus for the entirety of his public ministry. He heard him. When, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he heard him. When Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he heard him. When he cried out from the cross, he heard him. When he taught after his resurrection, he heard. He heard what Jesus taught. Even he heard what Jesus taught in secret because John was one of the inner three who heard things that even the other nine didn't hear. And when Jesus did things, he saw what Jesus did. He saw Jesus throw over the tables. He saw Jesus turn the water into wine. He saw Jesus walk on the water and calm the storms and split the bread and, and feed the thousands. He saw Jesus crucified, and he saw him when he had been risen from the dead, and he saw him when he went into heaven. John saw Jesus, and he touched Jesus. Jesus chose John. Of all the apostles, he chose John to lean against the night in which he was betrayed. And John, just in the regular hustle and bustle of life, touched Jesus, interacted with Jesus. John was a friend, a best friend of the Son of God. Who better to learn from than this? And then already John is giving some sort of rebuke to these false teachers, especially the ones who said that he wasn't a man. You know, you can't touch people who aren't men. But he experienced Jesus with his senses. He had seen, and he had heard, and he had touched. He was as real as any other man. But the main point is very easy to see, that, that John is an eyewitness. We might say a hand witness or an ear witness, but an eyewitness. And an eyewitness is the best kind of witness. It's the most reliable witness. If you can find one or two eyewitnesses, that's far more valuable than finding any other kinds of witnesses. And so John claims that he has a, a special authority, that he should be listened to above the others, not because of anything in his character necessarily, though that would have been true, but because of his, the special nature of his witness. Who will you listen to? Now he says that this, we proclaim 
John's not going to leave himself on an island at this point. He says, it's not just me. I'm not the only one who was there and saw and heard and touched. But there were others, at least the ten other apostles. He is among a group of apostles. And what did these apostles have in common? But they preached the same gospel. Who will you listen to? Not just me, but will you listen to all of us who saw and heard and touched? And that's what John is doing. He's sort of throwing down the gauntlet. Who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to these Johnny-come-latelys, these guys who are real slick and smooth in their speech and have these very nice-sounding ideas that jive with kind of the spirit of the age, the, the popular thought and Greek philosophy of the age? Are you going to listen to these guys, or are you going to listen to the one who saw and heard and touched? Who will you believe? Who will you listen to? Who do you think better knows the message these guys who have no personal experience with Jesus or me, his best friend. That's a compelling argument. If I was going to choose who to listen to, it would be pretty easy for me to choose at that point to listen to John. And that's what John wants. John wants for his readers and what the Lord wants for us now to listen to John. John begins by asserting his authority. Then we go on to see more about the object of this proclamation in verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The life appeared. That first word is very important, the. The is definite. It is not indefinite. The means one, means unique. Not a life appeared. Not a form of divinity, but the life appeared. There is something unique. There is something special about Jesus that no one else can match. The life appeared. Only Jesus is like himself. No one else has accomplished salvation, and there is no other name in which one must believe in which one can be saved. So he, John already begins proclaiming that Jesus is unique. And here he offers a rebuke to the other group. He'd offered a rebuke already to the ones who had said that he wasn't a man. Now he offers a rebuke to those who say he isn't God. He is the life. He has the embodiment of life in himself. He is the Lord of life. He is the source of all life. He is not one to whom life was given. He is the one who, from whom all life overflows. The life appeared. Jesus course is God. God is the only one who has that sort of life. There's something that we should stop though, I think we should note. And it's a theme that's common with the Gospel of John, very, very well known verse for us from John 3.16. The word love does not appear here in these two verses, but the concept is very present. That he appeared. That he came. You flip over just a, a few books back to the Gospel of John. Very famously, Jesus said to Nicodemus, or perhaps John wrote it as a gloss on the conversation, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That he sent his son to appear. He loved to the point of everlasting life. The one who gives life who gives eternal life, that is the one that John says that he 
has seen. So verses 1 and 2 speak about the the proclamation of the message. Now verses 3 and 4 will tell us why. Why does John, why do the apostles want to preach? This is what we read starting in verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why the preaching? Why the proclamation? Why the concern? Why all the effort and the energy into these churches? It's because John wants these people to have fellowship with them. John wants these churches to remain united to John and to John's gospel. He wants them to have a unity. He wants his churches to be united together with him in the apostolic message. Sometimes... Sometimes I think we need to step back a little bit and remember that we are not Christians on an island. We spent a little bit of time speaking about this in our time in Utah a few weeks ago, and that we are, we are to use, to use a, a metaphor from Paul, we are part of a body. Well, what happens to a finger if it gets cut off the body? It dies. One must be part of the body. One must be in fellowship with others. We are part of the body of Christ. And we are to have fellowship with each other. We are part of a, of a fellowship here at First Church and in Lansing with the other Orthodox Bible-preaching churches in the U.S. and around the world. But not only that, we are in fellowship with others who are, who are even dead, who are already now triumphant in glory but we are united with them in a common faith as well. Because what do we all have in common? We do not have in common where we live or our ethnicity or our wealth, our socioeconomic status. We don't have in common our gender. We don't have any of those things in common. What we have in common is Christ and His Gospel. That we believe the same things. There was something unique about the apostles. The apostles had a unique office. They were the ones who wrote Scripture. They were the ones who had received direct authority from Jesus to preach to the nations. They were the ones who were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote inspired authoritative revelation. And as the age of the apostles, John being the last of them who was alive, according to the church, as the age of the apostles passes, the role of the preacher changes from that of preaching new revelation in the way of the apostles to that of preaching what has already been revealed. So John, as an apostle here, preaches the apostolic message, the true faith. Paul says that it is on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles the church is built. We don't build on ourselves or our own thoughts. We build upon the word of the living God. This is part of the significance of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, The Apostles' Creed is not written by the apostles. That was sort of a a myth that was told in, in the early medieval ages or before that, but The Apostles' Creed simply is a short summary of some of the very core parts of the gospel. And if you do not believe 
these very simple things, then there is no salvation outside of this. And the Nicene Creed includes that, is included in that. The Athanasian Creed is included in that as well. These are things that bind us together in a common faith. And in that common faith, we have fellowship one with another, but we also have fellowship with the apostles, that you may have fellowship with us. And the apostles had fellowship with Christ. And as Jesus says in John 10, I and the Father are one. If we are to have fellowship with God, it must be through Christ. And if we are to have fellowship with Christ, we must have his gospel. And the gospel is what John teaches and what he so desperately wants his people to believe. And so then we finish this then with the second reason that John writes, which is in verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Again, this seems kind of a strange thing. It seems rather selfish. Our joy. Well, why not your joy? Right? I mean, that would be appropriate, wouldn't it? We write this to make your joy complete. And that certainly would have been, I think, a part of the rationale. But the expressed intent here is our joy. John wants joy. John wants joy in hearing that his churches are walking in the truth. That's a good joy. You know, you think, go back to the metaphor of the shepherd. When the sheep are well fed and well taken care of and the job of feeding the sheep has been completed well, the shepherd has joy. And when the sheep are at rest in the evening and things have gone well for another day and the day is done, the shepherd can have joy. And when the lion or the bear that would come and carry off the sheep to devour it has been beaten back, there's joy. Just this last week, I had a a moment of great victory. It was the evening time. We were about to go to sleep, and there was a wasp landed on the wall in our room. I'm very glad that I saw it before it got in the middle of the night. So there's this wasp, and it's buzzing around. And So what did I do? I left Melanie in the room. I closed the door, and I went to go grab the fly swatter. Very brave of me, wasn't it? So I went and got the fly swatter, and I waited for it to land in just the right spot. And then very swiftly, if I might say, I smashed it. And I had joy because it was dead. And we were safe. Imagine how much more a shepherd feels if he chases off a lion or a bear. There's joy. Well, just imagine John's joy then. John's joy when he sees that his churches are walking in the truth, that they're no longer in danger from these false teachers. John would have great joy. So he writes for their benefit so that he can rejoice in their benefit. John has a pastor's his people aren't doing well, then he won't either. You know, where there is no peace, there is no joy. Some of us come from, or perhaps even now, live in homes where there's distress, live in homes where there's bickering or constant anger. There's not joy in that kind of a home. Perhaps we see others that we love who live in such homes. There's not joy for us when we think about that. There is no joy if there is no peace 
And the only way a church can have peace is if it has Christ in common. So John won't be content until his churches have Christ. I think there's a, a few very simple applications that we can take away from this. And the first is that we should want fellowship with God. We should want fellowship with God. We should want to be with God. We should want that. We should want what John wanted for us, that we would have fellowship with the apostles, as he says, and their fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. We should want to have fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That should be the desire of our heart. We looked at this last week as we saw the passage from 2 Corinthians 5. We should want to be reconciled to God. Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We should want to be reconciled to God, taken out of our sin, made right with God through the work, the blood of Christ. We should desire that as John desires that for his church. But we should, as John did, we should want that for others as well. We should want that for others outside of here? Absolutely. It should be a burden on us. Perhaps a joyful burden to desire for others to be reconciled to God. But it should be our desire here as well. It should be our desire for churches as well, for those who claim Christ. One of the great burdens of the past generation or so has been to see so many churches fall into error again and again and again. There is no joy for me, and there shouldn't be joy for anyone in watching church after church after church fall into one heresy after another. We should desire for other churches, for people here and elsewhere who claim the name of Christ to be in fellowship with us in the Gospel. Then, finally, we should want Joy comes in the church when we have a common faith and a common purpose. And we live in strange times, to say the least. When I first began this series, as I mentioned earlier, a, a few months ago, it was a rather mundane year. Nothing seemed off. We had had a very pleasant winter so far, which I particularly enjoy. And other than that, it was just a normal time. Election years very rarely stay normal, but for the moment, it was normal. But then everything changed. You know, I had everything mapped out. It was, it was, it was very clear. I knew the number of Sundays it was until I was going to leave for sabbatical, and I had the book of 1 John broken up into just so many sermons that I would finish the book the Sunday before I left. But here we are in John 1, 1, 1 John 1, 1, and here I am. I love you all, but this wasn't where I was hoping to be this summer. But our best laid plans sometimes are, are thrown off. And that's true, that's true for us as a whole. Our, our minds are scattered. We've been pulled this way and that way with one news report after another news report. And in all of this, un, in all this unusual circumstance, in all of this strangeness, we can begin to fray a little bit at the edges. As things are not normal, when things aren't normal, we begin to be a little bit on edge. 
We begin to be testy, and the tension arises, and there begins to be a little bit more strife. And then we lose patience, even just a little bit of patience. And because we lose patience and we're more tense, we sometimes take it out at home. Home becomes more volatile. We take it out at work. Work becomes more volatile. And we might even take it out at church, and the church may become more volatile. I don't think that has happened, though I don't always know everything that goes on in the church. But it can be very easy for us to become divided, especially at strange times. We already are, in some sense, divided. Some of us are here more all the time, praise the Lord, but others are not. We're divided in space, in geography. We're divided in practice. Some are masked and others aren't. Some are more concerned than others. We're divided by experience. Some of us have lost jobs or had our work significantly reduced. Others of us hadn't really have anything change for us. Some of us, we might be divided politically. We may have differences of opinion on uh, the legality of mandates and the validity of different government actions. We may have differences of opinion of the government writing checks with money it doesn't have to send out by the trillions to people. We, we might have differences of opinion on all kinds of things. Which, which report is right and which report is wrong and who should we be listening to? We may be divided on all of these different issues. And in all of this, we are not truly divided. Because the most important union we have together is not our politics, is not our masks, is not our social distancing, is not our jobs. The most, the most important union we have together is Christ. And because we have Christ in common, we can overcome all those other differences as important as we may perceive or not perceive them to be. We have together a common faith, a common hope, a common baptism, and a common Savior. And because we hold those things, and we'll never, ever, 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 ever let them go, we bear with one another. We stay united only in Christ. That's what John wants. He wants his people to stay united and united in Christ. And because we are united together in faith, we can be united together in purpose. Common faith, common belief, breeds common purpose. A purpose to glorify God. A purpose to see the Word preached here, everywhere else. A purpose to see, see love inside the church and to see a service outside to our neighbors. We have a common purpose. And in a common purpose and in a common faith, there is joy. That's what Jesus wants. And that's what Jesus' best friend wants for his churches. And it's what the Holy Spirit would have for our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to have our deepest, profoundest joy in the unity and the purity and the peace of the church. As we hold Christ in common, calling upon the same name, trusting in the same Savior, and knowing you as our same Father. God, would you give us grace? Would you give us grace to find our joy together with the apostles in the well-being of the church? And then as well to grant grace and to give joy to others by seeking the peace 
It comes in having a common faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.